Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the 2016 Autumn Statement. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Stephanie Flanders, chief market strategist for Europe at JP Morgan Asset Management, and Rupert Harrison, the chief macro strategist for Moti Asset at BlackRock, and formerly chief of staff to the Chancellor, George Osborne. Thank you all for joining. So, Philip Hammond delivered his first major fiscal event on Wednesday, and like many autumn statements, it was a mini-budget in all but name. The UK economy looked to be in pretty decent shape, with growth forecasts revised upwards, but there are clearly going to be some bumpy times ahead as the Brexit process begins. This looks as if it will mean more borrowing, potentially lower tax revenues, and some rather scary levels of debt. And for good measure, we've had another row about our forecasts and whether they should be ignored. So, George Park, if I can begin with you, just give us an overview of the autumn statement. What was Philip Hammond trying to achieve here, and how much of it was a change with the past? Because since the last budget, everything has changed. New Prime Minister, new Chancellor, and new political landscape with Brexit on the horizon. Well, the, the big thing, obviously, is Brexit and the fiscal rules have been adapted from the George Osborne era. They've been loosened. Um, and the idea, of course, is to give um, Philip Hammond more leeway in case things go wrong. Now, it doesn't matter whether he believes or doesn't believe the forecast provided to him by the OBR. But from a political point of view, I think it's quite useful that the bad news is out there early. And I think politically what he's done is he's tried to build himself enough room in those fiscal rules to provide him with a fund to deal with any shocks that come from Brexit. But equally, in election year, he's given himself £27 billion, which he could spend, this is borrowed money, of course, as an election war chest. So although we're going to talk a lot about the economics of the Autumn Statement today, I think it was actually intensely political. And on the question, is it a big break from the Osborne era? Well, I'm sure Rupert Harrison will say probably not. And I think I tend to agree with him. You know, there's a lot of continuity here. There's £23 billion on infrastructure. But to be honest... George Osborne was doing the same kind of stuff already. Just before we come on to the economics of it, there was a lot of talk in the run-up about the jams as the new squeeze middle, the people who are just about managing. And mm. Theresa May wanted plenty of big, bold measures to appear to those people. I didn't see too many of those in the budget, so it seems in a way Mr Hammond has approach of taking a more cautious one seems to have won out. Yeah, the measures that were supposed to help the just about managing families were modest in the extreme. I mean, the most headline-grabbing thing, the continuation of the freeze on fuel duty was completely offset by a rise in the tax on insurance. So very little help. And I think there's decent politics behind that, which is that although people may be upset and suffering if you're just struggling to get by, you don't have a vote at a Westminster election until 2020. So if you're a political chancellor, you keep your powder dry and keep any goodies that might be available back until the end of the Parliament. OK, Stephanie, so let's have a look at the state of the UK economy at the moment then. The most striking thing seems to be about the state of public borrowing at the moment. And based on these projections, which again we'll come on to in a moment, um, it looks like we're going to be heading to that 90% of um, GDP ratio next year. Is that something to be worried about at all? Or is this new approach, as you've argued in the FT, sort of 
something that's welcome, but maybe a little bit too late. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think that uh, we should perhaps sort of pause to remark on a, on a Conservative Chancellor announcing that uh, debt would peak at 90% of GDP. There's been some classification changes to do with what the Bank of England's doing, but clearly this is a, a much higher peak than was envisaged under um, the first few years of George Osborne. So I think in that sense, you know, we have we've moved into a new era, but it's it's something that we've seen around the world. There's this new enthusiasm for fiscal activism and a new state of uh, relaxation when it comes to the public finances that you also see evident in the financial markets. Certainly wasn't very much punishment from the markets for the ex- for the extra number of gilts that uh, Philip Hammond announced he was going to have to put onto the market yesterday and all that new borrowing that we weren't necessarily expecting. And I think that just shows you we're in a different era. When George Osborne came in in 2010, it was perhaps the high watermark of austerity talk. Now we're really moving in a different kind of direction. And I think he quite sensibly in actually spending more, borrowing more than he needed to, in a sense, and putting that extra borrowing to work in public investment, he made a pretty good judgment that that's the best place to put it at this time. But it would be wrong to say this is sort of, quote-unquote, the end of austerity, which I think happens every time we have one of these statements, because there's still significant constraints on public spending within within the autumn statement. And you still have a squeeze coming down the track for the next few years, most of which was not reversed, particularly the squeeze coming through the freeze in benefits for many working families is not going to be reversed. So that's quite right. But if anything, actually, in the first year, I don't know if Rupert agrees, but many people in the markets had thought he'd be a bit more generous, offset a bit more of the austerity coming down the track for next year. But perhaps, as George suggests, there's a political angle to that. So Rupert, what did you make of the autumn statement then? Because obviously as the man, the brain behind many of George Osborne's um, budgets and autumn statements down the year, is this a break with the past? Well, before we get on to I think it's worth, in context of what Stephanie was saying, just taking a step back and saying I think we should be quite thankful that actually over the last six years we did get our deficit down from 10% of GDP to more like 3 or 4% of GDP. Because if we had taken a more lax approach over the past six years and had not, as George Osborne put it, you know, spent the time fixing the roof while the sun was shining, we would be facing Brexit with a deficit of 6 7% of GDP and we'd be in a much worse situation and perhaps Philip Hammond wouldn't have so much uh, fiscal space as he has to spend a little bit more on infrastructure. But in terms of what's changed, I mean, the big thing that's changed is Brexit. Uh, and that is apparent in all the numbers that we saw yesterday. I don't think the underlying philosophy of the Treasury has changed. You know, Philip Hammond is still uh, a fundamentally a balanced budget conservative. Uh, he still is aiming for that surplus. He's uh, had to push it back, as in fact George Osborne acknowledged before he stepped down would be inevitable given the Brexit shock. And he has spent a little bit more on infrastructure. I actually accounted back over the last six years. There were five occasions over the last six years where George Osborne came to the House of Commons and announced more money for infrastructure structure, you know, similar single figure billions numbers. So I think, again, it's more continuity. Uh, But, you know, the big thing that's changed is Brexit. Just to push back on that a little bit, it's certainly true that there were several years where the Chancellor was announcing increased public investment, but that was in many ways to remedy the big fall that happened in the first couple of years of the austerity programme. And I think that it's at least arguable that you could have had, given a lot of the new debate that we're having and a new economic analysis around fiscal policy that suggests that actually the multipliers, if you like, the effect on the economy of having public investment at a time when 
private activity is suppressed when you've got very low interest rate could it can actually if not pay for itself certainly have a big impact on growth so i'm not sure you know the fact that he had announced lots of increases trying to make up for the big fall in public investment in the first couple of years i don't think is a great achievement well again i'm not i'm not sure that narrative really works <laughs> i mean the, the the big cuts in public investment were put into the numbers by alistair darling and uh, you know have, have, the irony is gordon brown having spent a decade saying that's what you shouldn't do the big part of the darling plan to reduce the deficit was cutting capital spending. And but actually, yours was supposed to be first, better. So why in his you first saying? budget, uh, George Osborne added two or three billion to that capital plan. And then over succeeding events over the next six years, added five times more additional infrastructure spending. And to the extent where actually this decade, we're going to be spending more as a share of GDP on infrastructure than we did in the last decade. But when it comes to fiscal policy, it's true that now that deficits around the world are a little lower, uh, that the emergency has passed. And now that the people are, you can see that we are reaching the limits of what monetary policy can achieve, people are looking to fiscal policy a little bit more. The irony is actually that now is precisely the time when actually it's probably going to have less impact on the economy, because certainly in the US and the UK, we're close to full employment. There aren't the spare resources that you can put to use with fiscal policy. And particularly in the US, where we are, I think, going to see a big fiscal stimulus, you're probably going to get it at precisely the wrong time for the economy, just when monetary policy is is tightening. But I suspect where, where Rupert and I would agree is that if you are going to be part of this fashion for increased borrowing or even attempted fiscal stimulus, to be putting that money to good use in areas that we think actually may ultimately yeah. increase productivity and potential growth seems exactly the right use of the money at a time when what we saw from the Office for Budget Responsibility is that there's you know, this continued hole in the public finances, not specifically from Brexit, but from the underperformance of productivity, which they just think can, will continue to occur. Because it was about £60 billion was the whole the Brexit hole that's been described, but that's only, as you said, half about £120 billion. Um, but just going back to the budget slightly, Rupert, one of the things that George Osborne was criticised for was creating these targets by which point there would be a surplus, which were missed several times, not always due to his own fault, due to other things as well. And Philip Hammond has scrapped that. And it's, I don't know when that's going to be. It's going to be early in the next parliament. And even then, um, the OBR doesn't seem to be very optimistic about that. You know, Do you think it's imperative still to achieve a surplus? Um, well, on, I mean, fiscal targets are, I think, a useful constraint on all governments, and almost all governments have them. The, you know, of course, they get broken because if events happen and things change, but they still constrain behaviour, and I think that's the important thing. That's why markets like to see them in place. Interestingly, what Philip Hammond has done, as George uh, hinted at at the beginning, he's, he's given himself quite sensibly, I think, quite a big bit of headroom. Uh, it's not massive over the time horizon because we've seen that we can still get big revisions, but it's it's a, it's a chunky bit of headroom. And I think that's very sensible given the unusual amounts of uncertainty that we have at the moment. He's keeping his powder dry. Just to be clear again about the importance of the productivity thing, though, all you would need is for there not to be the improvement in productivity that the OBR is expecting, even with no, Brexit. It, absolutely. For that, if that doesn't happen, if we don't actually have any improvement in productivity and we have a continued the same as we've had for the last few years, all of that headroom disappears without Philip Hammond doing anything at all. So we shouldn't exaggerate I how agree. large it is. I totally agree with that. And where I do absolutely agree with Stephanie is that the big challenge really in the UK and indeed around the whole developed world is this incredibly poor productivity growth that we've had for you know, a decade now. And in that sense, I think all this infrastructure and you know, we should put this into the structural reform bucket. How are we going to try and deal with low productivity rather than a kind of sugar rush for the economy? I remember when Theresa May became Prime Minister, or just before she became Prime Minister, she suggested that Treasury wasn't concerned about productivity. Uh, and this was going to become a priority for a government. Was she right? 
Uh, I, well, I, I think there was a big change of tone when the government came in, quite understand. I totally would have done exactly the same thing as Theresa May, try and draw a big contrast with what went before. Uh, mm. You know, this is a new government with a new focus. In reality, it's been largely, apart from Brexit, the elephant in the room is largely continuity. And governments, frankly, for of all colours, for decades have pr- produced productivity plans and would, reform yeah. plans. It, mm. it, the, the, it's just very hard to do and it takes a very long time. When you talk about the change with the past, we might debate about the sort of balance on investment and all of those things. But I, I would have to support Rupert as someone who's had to report on in the past and other things for many of these uh budgets and autumn statements, George Osborne went just as much on about productivity. He didn't invest quite so much in it, but he certainly talked about it. I think it's right to say that the OBR, when it analysed the £23 billion to be invested in in infrastructure, said that it would make virtually no difference at all to the growth potential of the economy. Well, it's the same old issue. They they have to use very traditional economic models and they're only supposed to be looking over a certain time frame. So for them not to incorporate a positive effect on growth within the next five years, I think is entirely reasonable. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's very sensible because actually where British governments have got into trouble in the past is when they believe their own rhetoric and start thinking they've raised the trend growth rate of the economy. We saw that in the 80s. We saw that in the run-up to the financial crisis. You know, better in this area, it's better to show, not tell. Do you think on the productivity question, George, which is one of the big increasing issues, um, what else do you think the government can or might consider doing on this besides what was in the autumn statement? It's very hard to know. I mean, every, all the focus has been on fixing the plumbing of, of the country, really, sort of boosting the networks and all the rest of it. We're going to hear talk about education reform later in this parliament and the controversial grammar school proposal, which Theresa May may or may not pursue. Um, so there are other things the government can do. But given the fact that it was such a big part of her pitch on the steps of Downing Street, the autumn statement is a relatively modest response. I think it's interesting, though, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, everyone has focused on this issue of productivity, as Rupert said. And I guess my only concern about some of this talk of industrial strategy is that it might be attracted to the idea, the sort of old fashioned idea of, you know, you're picking industrial sectors and you want your super duper high tech this and that. Whereas actually, if anything, the evidence is that our productivity shortfall comes from, you know, not an absence of high technology sectors, but the fact that there is now such a huge gap between the high performing companies in Mm. terms of productivity and everybody else. So arguably, if you just raise the productivity a little bit of these not very sexy sectors that have done badly over the last few years, you could make a bigger difference than having a super wonderful sort of biogenetics industry or whatever it is. And I hope um, that we'll hear a bit more about that in line with some of this talk about getting money into skills and also devolving a bit more to the local authorities and cities so that they can try and have this more sort of aggressive approach to productivity that's really bottom up, that isn't mm. about these sort of sexy companies. I think it's companies. important that we don't get too parochial about things we can do to improve productivity because actually this is a global phenomenon and it is happening in all sorts of Much different economies. Much worse in the UK than anywhere well, else. Well, the, the slowdown, of productivity. The, the level, the historical UK level problem is long-standing. But the, the slowdown... The crisis is also larger well, the slow, in the it's UK. It's actually now, post-revisions, looks much more similar to the US numbers and many European countries. So this is a global slowdown, has to do with... Uh, you know, all sorts of factors, including demographics and technological change. And so while we should absolutely do the things we've just been talking about and hope for the best, I think it's quite right from a public finance point of view that you should plan for the worst. So um, this was generally a 
um, autumn statement that looks pretty bad for Brexit, George. And um, I, th- I, th- I think it would be hard to put a good spin on this, except maybe the economy's in pretty good shape. But um, the Brexiters were out in force yesterday mm. and they attacked the OBR for their forecast, pointing out the OBR has got things not exactly right in the past, if not entirely wrong. And therefore, we should ignore all predictions. And it went back to this old thing of talking down the economy, which is a concept I don't particularly understand because <laughs> it's facts and figures. How can you talk those down? Um, can you explain, you know, what this row is about? Well, the row is that a number of bodies, including the Treasury and the Bank of England, uh, made forecast, were making forecasts before the Brexit vote about how terrible things were, and they didn't all materialise, although I think some of them are showing signs of materialising. I think the truth is that somebody has to make forecasts, and if it wasn't the OBR, it would be the Treasury. Uh, and you can imagine there'd be a much bigger uh, storm this morning if it was Tory MPs blaming the Treasury for talking down the economy rather than an independent body led by Robert Choate. But you can see what, yeah, they are they're angry because they think the forecasts have been wrong in the past. But as Philip Hammond was saying, you know, there's so much uncertainty around the forecast. Nobody knows what Brexit could look like. It could turn out a lot better than the OBR's forecast, in which case that's great news for Philip Hammond in the run-up to the 2020 election. But they're also planning for things being worse. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the fan charts in the OBR forecast, there's a huge difference between you know the the sort of Panglossian view of some of the Brexiteers that everything's going to be great and a much worse um, outcome, which is entirely possible if the negotiations go well, badly wrong. And it is interesting in Westminster today. All the talk has been there's been a sort of acceptance that this was the the gloomy outlook that you know hopefully will be turn out to be wrong, um, and it's sensible perhaps you know even on the sort of supporters of OBR have said it's good to err on the side of being cautious. When I don't know what Rupert thinks, but looking at these forecasts, they seem to be, if anything, optimistic about the lasting effect of having all of this uncertainty around our trading arrangements. Um, they're certainly in line with what many other economists have said. Um, they don't incorporate any long-term effect on our trading capacity or any reduction in exports from having reduced, uh, having higher trade barriers than the rest of the world. And the timing of it, they basically assume the economy more or less get back to normal within two or three years. I think even the biggest supporters of Brexit would not think that we will have arrangements, clear and certain arrangements for our trading relationships in place in two or three years. So if anything, these are optimistic. Because, Rupert, the three things the OBR forecasts were predicated on were one, that the e- the UK has left the EU by April 2019, which is not a given. The other one was that there is a reduction in uh, trade. And then the third one is that there is a reduction in migration, although not necessarily to the tens of thousands limits. So that all adds the idea that we have no idea still what Brexit is really going to look like and what effect it's going to have on the economy. Um, so that buys into Stephanie's view that it could be a lot worse than is in the forecast. Interestingly, on migration, they haven't forecast any change no. in migration. They would have forecast an increase in migration right. based on recent numbers. So it's saying it's going to remain. So if and we they do haven't get really down, built in a reduction in trade. Yeah, and they? if we do get down, the way the short-term impact of migration on public finances is if we do get it down to the tens of thousands, that will actually hurt the public finances even more. I mean, I think that the OBR have quite cannily positioned themselves in a place that's very transparent, uh, credible, but just to the optimistic side of the Bank of England and the average of independent forecasters. So uh, they've tried to kind of equalise the flack they'll get from both sides, I think, in this, uh, although I suspect that you know, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg will now be gunning for Robert Choate. I mean, I think it's worth taking a moment to say, you know, I would say this given that we designed it, but I think you know, this is a, the kind of time where the OBR is an incredibly useful uh, innovation because there is no way that the Treasury under pressure from number 10 would have penciled in such realistic forecasts. I think it would have been politically impossible. 
I think the one thing that we have to bear in mind is that this is a central forecast by the OBR, but you speak to officials closely involved in preparing the Brexit negotiations who would put as high as 30% the chance of these negotiations failing completely, Britain crashing out of the EU sometime before the next election and going straight onto the WTO rules. And in those circumstances, those forecasts, I think, will end up looking rather optimistic. And the WTO rules, as we know, are not just there to resort to. They're not, they're not like going back to the factory settings of a computer. You still actually have mm. to put a lot in place for that not to be pretty catastrophic. So. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose the, the final question of this, what's going to happen next time? Because the autumn statement has been cancelled, oh. George, as was much discussed, <laughs> to be replaced by a spring statement. So this is something that chancellors have wanted to do for quite a while um, and go back to try and one big fiscal venture. Some chancellors say Alistair Darling yeah. is some, but not others. Um, and George Osborne, actually. People don't yes. remember, but the yeah. autumn statement 2010 was just a forecast. With no measures <laughs> and no document, but we only managed it for a year. Well, that was after, that was when you'd had a budget three months before. Yes, but the aim was to not have an autumn statement. The problem was in the summer of 2011, the Eurozone crisis kicked off and we had yeah. huge downgrades that we had to respond to. So I suspect that future chancellors might succumb to the well, same exactly. need to respond to events. I was speaking to Alistair Darling about this and he said it was always his objective to go down to one big fiscal event a year. And, you know, obviously he couldn't. He was dealing with a financial crash and then you were dealing with a Eurozone crisis. In fact, there's always a crisis coming along. And you needed to change course halfway through the year. So, well, Philip Hammond's living the dream of <laughs> chances. <laughs> whether, whether it actually turns out like that and whether the spring statement, which is meant to be of nothing more than a response to the OBR, will actually turn out to be something slightly bigger than that, we'll have to wait and see, I think. But it also means we get two budgets next year, which will be a particular boon. Can I ask one question to you, Rupert? Because one of the, things, one of the breaks with the Osborne era announced in this awesome statement was the uh, Chancellor scrapping the shares for rights scheme, the scheme that you devised in the Treasury where you could hand in your employment rights in exchange for a few shares. Are you sad to see the demise of your brainchild? Well, you know, there you have some things that work and some things that don't, and that was all in the line of duty. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Stephanie, just quickly on the other announcements here, corporation tax, which is still set to fall to 17%. There's talk that they, because that's being so as the lowest in the Western world, but what if Donald Trump does get in and lowers it right down to 15%? Is there any case for the UK following it and taking it down to 15? Look, I think you can have debates around these things. And obviously, you know, we have made a big store around that kind of tax competitiveness. Um, we probably ought to not expect too much uh, too quickly from Donald Trump, certainly from talking to people in, in the States. But I would argue also in the context of the Brexit negotiations, it's a little bit dangerous to be put, putting out these uh, goals and objectives for corporation tax because the very first thing that the other side will ask for is for us to commit to not reducing our corporation tax. They're very keen for Ireland to do that, and Ireland is a member of the European Union. If you're trying to negotiate more from the outside for a good trade deal, I suspect that was one, that would be one of the things we'd quite quickly have to sacrifice. Well, you could say that was a good reason for threatening to reduce it and then you know, generously backing off your threat. In That's what makes you such a else. good pol politician. But, um, I mean, from, the, from the economic <laughs> point of view, I have to say I personally think there are... You know, quite seriously diminishing returns for the UK now for further reductions in corporation tax. I think getting it down to 20 or just below 20 was was a good thing to do. But now there are probably other focuses where you get more bang for your buck. And what about the housing announcements we had as well, George, that every time I think I've seen one of these things, it's always something to do with housing because yeah. there's always the house building crisis. But there does actually seem to be quite a lot of money going towards, particularly towards London as well, which Sadiq Khan will be very happy with. Yeah, the, there's a bit more money going into it, but it's been a feature. I think it was a feature of almost every one of George Osborne's uh, budgets and awesome statements. Um, I think the truth is that 
until you are prepared to really rip up some of our planning laws and to have a much more liberal regime on where you can build, um, we're going to face the same problem. And I think it goes back to Theresa May's fundamental problem as Prime Minister, which is identified a whole series of problems and issues affecting people on low incomes. But is she prepared to take on the Tory base to help them and ripping up the planning laws and allowing people to build in the shires of England is a big ask for a Tory Prime Minister. And then finally on our last point, um, Philip Hammond himself, what have we learnt about the man who is now going to be running the UK economy for the next few years? Well, I thought he really looked like he was enjoying it. I thought that was the first thing to say. You know, it's a job he's coveted for a long time. And although everyone assumes that Philip Hammond is not really very political, he's very. the fact is he's obviously pretty good at being a politician because he's now the chance to be exchequer. And I think below all the numbers and the you know, fairly sort of um, staid and sober delivery, there was a big political intent in there, which is, first of all, to give himself some leeway running up to the 2020 election, but also to present to the country and to the House of Commons and some of his pro-Brexit colleagues that this is a ser- these are serious times. You know, the negotiations we're playing for high stakes. And what's his big political objective in the next 12 months is trying to push Theresa May into a position where she's arguing for a softer sort of Brexit rather than the hard Brexit that some of her colleagues want. Stephanie? Look, I think he, I mean, uh, certainly the expectations management, you know, spreadsheet Phil and all these uh, uh, nicknames that he'd been called meant that he could be funnier and better than people were expecting. I do think it's a shrewd budget politically and probably takes policy in a sensible direction. So you, you cannot ask for more than that. And if it was boring, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And Rupert is boring good now. Well, I've been quite enjoyed a lot of the... We've had a lot of retrospectives of who is Philip Hammond over the last few <laughs> weeks. And even those of us who've known him for a decade, um, yeah, I was quite surprised to discover some of the things in there about, you know, he was the kind of wheeler dealer and a canny deal maker. And so I think the lesson is don't underestimate Philip Hammond. And that's it for our Autumn Statement special podcast. You can continue to follow all of the FT's coverage of obviously UK politics and the statement at FT.com. Thank you to George, Rupert and Stephanie for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.